Before we read God's holy, inspired word, let us ask the Lord to bless our reading and our hearing. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, just as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so too does your word go out from your mouth and shall not return to you empty. We pray, therefore, that your word would go forth in power this day and would accomplish that for which you purpose it. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way with us and in us. Succeed in building up your church this day. Succeed through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 16 of Paul's epistle to the Roman church. Hear the word of the Lord. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Great Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegalon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. What in the world is he going to do with this? We might quite easily pass over sections of scripture like this. It's a list of names. Names that we can hardly pronounce. Names of people we don't know, we can't know. Some of whom are not even mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And as I read over this list of names a couple weeks ago, I remembered a story of a missionary friend of mine who recalled an instance to me of a time when he was with the Wyclef Bible translators in Papua New Guinea working on a translation of the New Testament for an indigenous tribe there. Logically, it started with the gospel according to Matthew. How does Matthew begin? Chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of on and on and on. We usually skip right by these lists of names, don't we? My missionary friend told me, though, that when they completed this genealogy, they took it to the tribe to share with them their progress. And the members of the tribe listened intently, and when they had finished reading the genealogy, the entire tribe converted to Christianity. It's a true story. The translators were shocked. No, wait, we haven't even gotten to the good part yet. Why do you want to receive Jesus as your Lord before you have even heard what he's done for you? And the tribes people proceeded to exclaim that genealogies were extremely important in their culture. In their culture, where someone has come from was of utmost importance, and it told them who this person, Jesus, was. The Holy Spirit used Jesus' genealogy that day to convince them that God had drawn near to him, to them in this man, Jesus. And this man, Jesus, became real to them that day because they heard where he had come from. Now, I'm sure that there was a lot of discipleship that must have followed that day to teach the tribe to truly know Jesus and obey him. But my point is that these lists in scriptures, these lists of names in scripture matter. The genealogies in Matthew and in Luke matter because they powerfully demonstrate for us that God has fulfilled his promises. The Messiah has come born of a virgin, born in the divinic line, born to become the new Adam. But you might say, this is just a list of greetings, though. This isn't a genealogy. It's definitely not the genealogy of Jesus, and you would be correct. So why is this list important? I'm so glad you asked. As the 4th century church father John Christostom, the golden mouthed as he was known for his eloquent and powerful preaching, stated, I think that many, even of those who have the appearance of being extremely good men, hasten over this part of the epistle as superfluous. Yet, he continued, it is possible even from bare names to find a great treasure. Another commenter Commentator called this chapter of Romans, quote, one of the most instructive chapters of the New Testament, end quote. You might think that this is 
an exaggeration at best, but it was not meant as hyperbole. There is a great treasure here, for in this list, we are given the privilege to see a list of the saints in the church in Rome. And as I've said already, some of these individuals aren't even noteworthy enough to appear elsewhere in Scripture, but their names, the names of these ordinary Christians have been indelibly written into the pages of history. They were the church in Rome. And we get here not only, what we get here is not only their names, but we get the intimate relationship that Paul had with them. Paul loved these people. In this list, we're given a glimpse of the extraordinary affection Paul has for these beloved friends, these beloved fellow servants in the gospel, these beloved saints who have become with him in each other by grace part of the family of God. And we see here the culmination of this entire letter. As we look at the names of some of the people it was written for, it should all come together for us. Paul, inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit, has written this remarkable epistle, carefully crafted to remind these people who they were before being claimed by God's grace, what God had done for them in Jesus Christ, and who God had called them to be as his beloved children, set free from the law of sin and death and raised to newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. This was God's blood-bought, spirit-wrought church called according to his purpose and for his glory. It's easy to read Romans as a great theological treatise as though it's simply some work of systematic theology. No. This is a letter written to a group of people that Paul loved to encourage them, to instruct them, to challenge them to be the church that they were called to be to the glory of God. And it would be a shame to look at chapter 16 and think that we are looking, that what we are looking at is simply a formality for the conclusion of a typical letter. Paul's letters do typically conclude with greetings. It was the custom, but we would miss that Paul isn't really interested in formalities. Paul doesn't always follow proper letter-writing etiquette, nor is this even a typical list of names. Have you looked at the other greetings at the end of his letters? This list is remarkable. There are 26 individuals listed here, not including Phoebe. There are two families. There are three house churches. This is by far the largest number of greetings he has in any of his letters. And Paul hasn't even been to Rome. And so if we spend a little time, we begin to see why this is the most instructive, one of the most instructive chapters of the New Testament. There isn't much, if any, explicit teaching here, but there is a great deal of instruction that is being given implicitly. All of this great theology that Paul has laid out in the previous pages comes down to this. Greet one another by name. Come to know one another. Love one another as God has loved you in Christ Jesus our Lord. These verses are great and instructive because they provide encouragement for personal relationships of love in the church. Let me say that again. These verses are great and instructive because they encourage personal relationships of love in the church. 
Let me ask you this. Have you ever had friends, dear friends, who didn't know one another? Don't you have a deep longing for your friends to be friends with one another? We want those people we love to love one another. My best friend from seminary, James, moved to Seattle after we graduated. He moved out there because his fiancée, Lindsay, was there. She was from there and was uh, in graduate school there. Now, it just so happened that one of Elizabeth's, my wife's, very best friends, childhood friends, Haley, had just moved to Seattle to attend the very same school that Lindsay was attending. You want to guess what Elizabeth and I did when we found all this out? I immediately called up James, and I'm like, James, Elizabeth and I have a dear friend in Seattle who goes to the same graduate school as Lindsay. You have to meet her. You have to meet her. She has a heart for missions just like you do. She spent time as a missionary in Asia just like you did. You're going to love her. We want our friends to be friends with one another. It makes our hearts sing with joy to know that the people that we love love one another. Now, it just so happened that James and Lindsay had already met Haley and already had become friends with her. Elizabeth and I were so thrilled. We spent time telling James about Haley, telling him stories about her. And if I remember correctly, we called Haley and we spent time telling Haley stories about James. We wanted them to connect on a deep level. I thought about James and Lindsay and Haley as I read this list of names. What does it sound like to you? I commend to you our sister Phoebe. They don't know Phoebe a servant of the church of Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. I've spent time looking at this list of names and wondering who these people were, wondering about their stories. Don't you want to know about Phoebe, who was a patron of many? She was apparently very wealthy and was financially and materially supporting missionaries. Don't you want to know what Paul means when he says that Prisca and Aquila risked their Next for his life. By all likelihood, this, by the way, is Priscilla and Aquila, the married couple that came to Corinth after fleeing Rome because of Emperor Claudius's expulsion order of the Jews, which is found in Acts 18. They were tent makers, just like Paul. They ministered with Paul in Corinth. They traveled with Paul to Ephesus. It's there that they discipled Apollos. Remember that Timothy was in Ephesus as well. At the end of 2 Timothy, Paul asked Timothy to greet Prisca and Aquila. So apparently after Claudius' edict lapsed, they returned to Rome. Now don't you want to know, don't you want to hear how Penitus ended up as the first convert in Asia? Don't you want to know what role Mary played in the church in Rome or how Paul had spent time in prison with Adronicus and Junia? The list goes on and on. Each person has a story. Like Rufus. Do you remember Rufus? 
Mark 15, 20 and following. And when they had mocked him, Jesus, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. There's a reason why Mark tells his audience that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mark is writing his gospel in Rome. He mentions Alexander and Rufus because the church in Rome knows Alexander and Rufus. That's how we get identified, right? You know Dave Raymond? It's Daniel's dad. That's how we come to get identified. And here is Rufus in Romans 16. Greet Rufus, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. This is extraordinary. This man who was forced to carry Jesus' cross, his family becomes this well-known family in the church community in Rome. And his wife becomes like a mother to the Apostle Paul. How's that for Mother's Day? Each person has a story. Each person has a personal connection to Paul. Paul longs for them to have a connection to one another. Paul has told them that they have been reconciled to God, that they've been brought into relationship with God, but this vertical relationship has horizontal dimensions. Paul's been telling them about this. Love one another. Welcome one another. Greet one another. As I've read over this list again and again and again, and I've longed to know these stories of these individuals. I've longed to have an opportunity to meet them, to greet them, to love them as Paul loved them. The fact is that we can't know on this side of eternity, and yet Paul writes, what he writes here beckons us to love one another, to welcome one another, to greet one another. We can't know Prisca and Aquila or their story or Penitus or Mary or Rufus, but you know what? You can know the person sitting next to you on the pew this morning. I'm not simply referring to your family members. Do you know the people sitting next to you on the pew? I mean, really know them, not just know their names, but really have gone beyond small talk with them. Do you know their story? James and I had been in seminary for all of three years, and we studied together, we played together, we lived next to each other, we prayed together, we literally went to the other side of the world together. We were James and John, the brothers of thunder, both of us loud and energetic. And you know what? James looked at me in our final few months of seminary and said with sadness, Jonathan, Brother, I have no idea how you came to Christ. Never asked you. How have we known each other for almost three years, and I don't know this? We had shared with each other so many things, but never the most important thing. Do you know each other, brothers and sisters? Have you had purposeful conversations? There are some incredible stories in this church. There are 
Stories that can challenge you, stories that can encourage you, stories that would strengthen your faith and bring joy to your heart. Do you know one another? Do you know how God has been at work in each other's lives? God has ordained by his holy purposes and for his glory that you would be a local church body together to love and serve him together. Do you know one another? This isn't about Ampliatus or, or Banus or Apelles. It's about Mike and Catherine and Tom and Don and Cindy and Charles and Kim and Skip and Fred and Caroline. Greet one another. We have so much to learn from this passage. So I, I just want to spend a couple minutes pointing out a few quick things about this list that I think have implications for us. First, notice the nature of these relationships. We see Paul's affection for these people. Look at how many times he uses the word beloved. Look at some of the other words he uses. Our sister, fellow worker, kinsman, fellow prisoners, mother, brothers, saints. Here's one of the beautiful things about forming relationships with people in the church. The more relationships you build, the more blessed and enriched you will be. And the more you will have the opportunity to bless and enrich the lives of others in a variety of ways. Perhaps someone has acted for you as a mother or a father or a sister or a brother, or maybe you have served someone in this way. I heard at a memorial service just a week ago, someone stand up and said, this, this woman was a mother to me. Perhaps you're in need of a sister, a brother, a mother, a father. I've never heard a person say, I don't need any, you know what? I don't need any more wise and loving people in my life. I've got enough. Thank you. Never heard someone say that. And perhaps you've suffered or are suffering in a particular way and there's been someone who understands this suffering because he or she has faced it as well. And you know what? They show up next to your bed in the hospital. Perhaps you've served Christ with someone locally or globally. Perhaps you're being called to serve and someone in this room has wisdom to share in how to pursue this calling. God brings us together and he intends for these relationships we have to be mutually upbuilding as we spur each other on in love and good deeds. I want to offer a word of warning here, though. We should not be simply viewing the purpose of our relationships in the church as utilitarian. We should be especially careful of this in our context in the 21st century America, not to come into Christian community with our eyes set on its usefulness to us. It's a very wrong-headed attitude. One of the problems in our culture today is that too many people are bouncing around from church to church, thinking only of themselves, shopping around for what they want and how they can be served and blessed. The other side of that is I've also seen some who feel that they need to bless others as a way to make themselves feel validated and important. You know what we should all ask ourselves? Do I really love the church? Do I really love the church or am I just here getting my selfish needs met? Do I really love the church or am I just here to get a pick-me-up? Do I really love the church or is this just a nice place for me to be when it's convenient for me to be here? Do I really love the church or am I just checking a box that makes me feel like I'm acceptable to God? 
Do you love the church? Do you see her as the blood-bought bride of Christ of which you are a part? Paul makes clear the real nature of our relationships in the church here in Romans 16. The second detail we should be tuned into is how Christocentric these relationships are, or as John Piper puts it, how Christ-saturated these relationships are. Look at this, verse 2, welcome Phoebe in the Lord. Verse 3, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, first convert to Christ. Verse 7, they were in Christ before me. Verse 8, my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 10, approved in Christ. Verse 11, greet those in Christ who belong to the family. Verse 12, greet those workers in Christ. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Verse 13, chosen in the Lord. Again and again and again. Paul doesn't want us to miss this crucial aspect of our relationship with those in the church. This is why these relationships are different than any other relationship we have. We have been brought together in Christ. When we receive Christ by the power of the Spirit, we are brought into union with Him. We become children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, and brothers and sisters of each other. Through our union with Christ, we are brought into union with one another. This is why the language used in the New Testament to describe fellow believers is so familial. This means that our relationships in the church aren't like any relationships we form through work or civic organization or at the MAC or tailgating. These relationships become the most important relationships we have or they should. The bond we have in Christ goes deeper than even blood relations. This is why Jesus in Matthew 12 asks who his father, his his mother, and his brothers are. And he answers himself with his hand outstretched toward the disciples saying, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is why Jesus, two chapters earlier in Matthew, states that the gospel will set families against one another. We are to be more committed to Christ and his people, even more than our own family members who reject him. Paul doesn't want these individuals to miss that they are those for whom Christ died to bring together. This is their eternal family. This is at the core of their identity. It is who they are. How are we doing at living out the reality of this truth? Do you know one another? Do you know the people here as well as your coworkers, as your golf and tennis buddies, as the members of your hunting club, as the children on your kids' sports team and their parents, as your classmates? Have you been purposeful in your attempts to form relationships here in this place? Let me ask you, what does it say about what we believe about the church, about the nature of our union with Christ and by extension our union with one another if we only make time to see each other for an hour or two a week? Don't get me wrong. What we do here on Sunday morning is central to our life together. But when I look at the church in the New Testament, I see a family. I see a people 
who are sharing life together. Acts 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They weren't simply worshiping and praying together once a week. They weren't simply sharing a meal together once a quarter. They were in each other's homes day by day by day by day. What keeps us from this? What keeps us from forming these types of relationships? I have a few ideas, and Lord willing, I will offer these to you next Sunday. Pentecost Sunday, as we explore the Holy Spirit's work in binding us together with Christ and his people. These Acts 2 verses I just quoted are the direct consequence of the Pentecost. Of Pentecost, It comes immediately following the coming of the Holy Spirit. For now, though, I want to challenge you to search your heart and consider this question. What is keeping you right now from forming relationships, deep Christ-centered relationships with those seated around you if you haven't already done so? And if I can add one more thing for the time being, relationships take time. Do you have time? If forming relationships is a priority, a God-given priority, then is your schedule reflecting that priority? I'm going to say more about that next Sunday. The third and final detail I want to highlight in this list of names in Romans 16 is the diversity. Now, this point takes some assumptions on our part, but they are safe assumptions. There are Jewish Christians on this list. There are Gentile Christians on this list. There are very wealthy people on this list. There are very poor people on this list. There are slaves on this list. There are freedmen. There are singles on this list. There are married couples on this list. There are men on this list. There are women on this list. We could spend a great deal of time looking at all these details. Some of them are absolutely fascinating, by the way. Paul's naming of the households of Aristobulus and Narcissus, There's good reason to assume that Aristobulus is the same Aristobulus who is the grandson of Herod the Great, brother of King Agrippa I, and friend of Emperor Claudius. Narcissus is probably the same Narcissus who was well-known, rich, and powerful freedman who exercised great influence on Claudius. There's also very good reason to believe that neither of these individuals were actually Christian. Rather, Paul is sending greetings to those who belong to the family of these individuals, meaning they're slaves who apparently had converted to Christ. Talk about some people with some stories. Anyhow, I want to just say a couple things regarding the diversity shown here. First, this list represents a great diversity because in Christ we are made one body. The walls of division are torn down. Our relationships within the body of Christ should reflect that reality. Now, we naturally gravitate toward people we are comfortable with, people who are like us. But Paul challenges us here to be intentional to get outside of our comfort zones, to greet all those in the church. How are we doing with this? The second point I want to make here is that the number of women and the roles of these women mentioned here is very significant. Now, we might read this in our 21st century American contents and think, well, of course women are mentioned. That was not a given, though, in Paul's context. 
In God's good providence, we have come to this passage on a day in the life of our culture in which we celebrate women. And it would be a shame not to say that Paul's point is loud and clear that women played a vital role in the life of the church. It starts with Phoebe, whom Paul calls a diakonos. A diakonos. It's translated here with a general meaning of servant, but you can tell from the word that this is where we get our word what? Deacon. And most commentators agree that what Paul meant here was not just a general sense of the word, but was indicating that Phoebe held an official office in the church. I don't want to get into all the details of this, but this is why at Covenant we have women deacons right here. There are nine other women mentioned here. Prisca, who we've already discussed, Mary, Junia, who Paul mentions in relation to the apostles, probably meaning that she with Andronicus, who was probably her husband, were itinerant missionaries. There are Tryphena and Trophosa, who are probably sisters. Great names, by the way, if you are needing names for twin girls. Just, <laughs> just throwing that out there. There's Persis, Rufus's mother, Julia, Narius, Narius' sister. Ten women in all. And while this passage should not be read in isolation from the rest of what the New Testament says concerning gender roles in the home and in the church, we can be assured that what Paul says here indicates that women were not simply relegated to menial tasks in the life of the church. Paul indicates that these women were co-workers in Christ. They were laboring beside him for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This list is evidence that women played a central role in the life of the church. Therefore, this list is a reminder to us. By the way, there are like one-third of this list is women. It's remarkable. It's a reminder to us of the need for women to participate in the ministry of the church and also to celebrate, for us as a church community to celebrate the rich tradition we have of that here at Covenant. There are saints like our beloved Dot Haddad. who have gone before us and have provided an example of what serving selflessly looks like, what valuing relationships in the church community looks like. And I want to personally commend those of you who are serving through our diaconate ministry, through our missions ministry, through our hospitality ministry, our Christian education ministry, our ministry young mothers, our congregational care ministry, our day school ministry, our nursery ministry, the many other ministries here that shine the light and love of Christ in this community. Bless you. And these ministries matter because the relationships that are being formed and supported through them matter. My family has been incredibly blessed by these ministries. My wife has had mentors, mothers in the faith here, who have given freely of themselves, sharing their wisdom gained from years of the hard-fought battle of marriage and raising children. My children have been poured into by women who have taken seriously what it means to raise up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. My family has been loved in tangible ways when the hardships of life have hit. 
And this is what Paul is calling us to here. Each one of us men and women alike, he's calling us to share life together, to love one another, to welcome one another, to greet and get to know one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, greet one another with affection. Here's my challenge to you. In the next month, get to know three people here who you don't already know. Invite each other over for lunch after worship. You don't have to fix a big meal. I know someone who used to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because it was cheap and quick and easy. The meal isn't the point. The relationship is the point. Invite somebody out for coffee. Get together and pray together. Go serve together at CCM or another local mission agency. Mentor one another. Be purposeful in your relationships with one another. To the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have brought us together in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be challenged by passages like Romans 16. That it would challenge us to know one another, to greet one another, to love one another. That it would challenge us to be your church, to the praise of your glory. Lord, would you by your spirit help us with that? Do you spur us to that? Do you stir within this community to be an image of your love for the church in Jesus Christ? For we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm.